I'd like to thank all our panelists for joining us today. I know you guys are really busy at this time, especially at this moment and in, in, uh, around items I think we're about to discuss. But thank you all for uh, joining us. So we want to talk about how the FNB landscape uh, has been affected by the COVID-19 crisis and what the landscape is going to look like a year from now and how the evolution of the digitization of food is going to impact um, our respective ecosystems. What does that mean for um, the growth of, uh, of, of digital food or delivery or uh, tech, how they, there's an intersection between technology and food uh, that is being accelerated by the current uh, crisis and what we can look to expect and what the opportunities are uh, going forward. So I think to help us answer some of these really big questions, we're kind of joined by a really, by a, an esteemed panel from across the food tech value chain. So um, I'd like to hand it over to the panelists to introduce themselves, um, starting with Hashim. Thank you, Khalid. First of all, thanks for, uh, for having us. Uh, Ramadan Karim to everyone. I'm very excited to be joining this panel. Uh, quickly, I'm Hashim Montasser. I'm Egyptian. I've been in Dubai for 15 years formerly a banker and uh, now own uh, the lighthouse in D3. So I'm an F&B um, entrepreneur in general for the last uh, five years or so. I also separately invest uh, in startup companies as well. So I wear multiple hats. Thank you, Hashim. Uh, Sky? Uh, sure, I'm Sky Kurtz. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Pure Harvest Smart Farms. And for those who don't know, uh, we are a technology company that uses tech to control the climate and enable year-round production of locally grown fresh produce, uh, starting with tomatoes, but now expanding considerably into new crops, greens, and strawberries. Um, by way of background, though, I'm from the United States. I uh, studied, uh, or I actually uh, was a financier as well. I worked at Lehman Brothers before the crash, but I was on the healthy side of the bank, so not my fault. Um, <laughs> I then uh, worked as an investment <laughs> professional for many uh many years in technology investing in Silicon Valley. I worked for a fund called Francisco Partners that was partly owned by Sequoia Capital and uh, invested in many sectors in tech. I then became an entrepreneur. I did my MBA at Stanford Business School and very much got bit by the tech bug. It's been inescapable since and eventually decided to hang a shingle and start my own business. But an interesting fact though, I grew up in restaurants. My family owned a restaurant in a, in a kind of tourist trap in Arizona. And I grew up working in restaurants all the way through funding my uh, time in college. So I. I found my way full circle back to, to F&B ultimately in my career, but this, guy's, this case, of course, in food and the supply chain, using tech to produce food cheaper locally. Awesome. Thanks, Guy. Uh, thank you, Khaled, for uh, hosting this panel. I'm Marwan Tarabai. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Elite Nation. Uh, we're, uh, we're an owner of an operator of virtual restaurants uh, and operate with operation partners across uh, five countries and six cities, UAE, Kuwait, uh, KSA, UK, and USA. Uh, so I've been in technology before all my life, around 15 years in technology. Then around two and a half years, I decided to shift a little bit and add food next to technology. And I started the Leap Nation, which is a food tech company. It's a very interesting uh, space that uh, was started actually a couple of years back and a little bit more. And during these times, it's expected to uh, pick up and actually accelerate a little bit more and on a faster pace, actually. But. Excellent. Thank you so much, Koron, and thank you to all our panelists. I think uh, we've had a, a number of additional people join, so just to refresh, we're here talking about the impact of COVID-19 and 
the uh, COVID-19 on the F&B landscape and what that might mean for different players across the food uh, and beverage value chain. Uh, and with us today are a number of panelists who cover kind of uh, different elements of that value chain to, to help us unpack some of the big questions surrounding the sector. So I think I'll start off maybe by throwing off like a big uh, like a comment and then maybe see if we can if we can delve into it. I think unlike other segments like how retail has gone online and e-commerce has really thrived in this environment, we see a lot of mixed messages across the value chain in terms of um, in terms of what the impact of the lockdowns and the economic dislocation together have on the movement of food to online on delivery in, in specific. So. On one hand, you would expect that there'd be increased volumes because people are sitting at home. But then on the other hand, there are concerns over, um, over health and safety, but also over the fact that people usually order uh, when they're out in the office and people are not in their offices. So there, there's sort of like a seismic shift in consumer behavior. And the impact of that on F&B, particularly on the delivery and the tech side, is still not 100% clear. So it'd be great to kind of get a sense from uh, the people we have with us today uh, on how the crisis is impacting their businesses and where they think this is going to go to. So, um, so I'll just throw that out there and see and see who would like to kind of uh, start off first. Uh, yeah, I'm happy first to go, yeah, ahead. go ahead, Hashem. Yeah, thank you. So, uh, of course, as you mentioned, Khalid, so during this time, it was really hard to, yeah, to uh, estimate or ex to know what to expect. Although one would think people are staying at homes and uh, are going to order more food. Uh, however, what we've noticed, the first, uh, the first response, if I can say, the first couple of weeks, uh, numbers across the board, across the industry, for restaurants, for aggregators, for everyone, had a decline. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was driven, as you mentioned, by, by two things. One, they're not at offices, they're at homes, it's much easier to cook. And second, which is, I believe, the most important part is uh, concerns around hygiene, food safety, and any contact with, with outside of the vicinity of their homes. So we've seen a decline, of course, but if we look at other countries also, for example, the US, and which the same effect happened, although the uh, stay at home or government, government restrictions are not as tough as in our region. So same thing, there, there was a small decline at the beginning, but then the numbers really skyrocketed and the demand for online deliveries skyrocketed and increased. Um, of course, that's, that's a problem for, uh, unfortunately, for traditional businesses who did not have any presence online and they had to, they are doing the shift currently and uh, some of them are already there and uh, some players who are like us or had a presence online, even if they had an offline presence also. So I believe the outlook, uh, once the restrictions around movement uh, ease out a little bit and with the hygiene and food and say food safety concerns start to really fade away a little bit because most of the players and from our side it was probably around a matter of two or three days where we have taken measures around hygiene and safety across the board from kitchen staff inside the kitchen thermal cameras outside the kitchen to protect the actual food being delivered we introduced double seal packaging so everyone has taken really serious measures right away and i believe Actually, recently, this the past week, we've started seeing an uptick in, uh, in demand. So it's quite interesting to see how it's going to also unfold in the future. No, absolutely. Hashim, I think you wanted to weigh in on this. Yeah, thank you. Just to add to what Marwan is uh, saying, and obviously we've observed similar, similar patterns um, from, the from the perspective of the lighthouse. So we are just, 
by way of introduction, I mean, we are a restaurant and concept store, as I said, in D3. So we have both a, a physical presence as well as online presence. So we've been working both our own direct delivery channel uh, through chat food, as well as through the aggregators, the typical aggregator model for over a year now. So we, we have a little bit of a hybrid model in that sense. I would want to differentiate uh, Khalid between two phases. I think phase one is the phase we're in now, which is, uh, let's call it pre-vaccine phase, post-COVID, uh, post-pandemic post, post pre-vaccine. Mm -hmm. So I think we are in this phase now. Obviously, none of us know exactly how long this phase will last. During that phase, I think the market is frankly in flux because mm -hmm. what, you, what you have is a situation, as Marwan said, where you have a smaller pie in total because uh, offices, many of them are not, people are not going to their offices. Those that are staying home are cooking at home more um, and not ordering as much. So you have a smaller pie and many more players competing for that pie. Those players are obviously the traditional restaurants. You have the cloud kitchen uh, guys and, um, and you also have now some of the wholesale food guys coming in and you have the groceries and all of those are competing together. So one of the things that's interesting in this phase one is you've appended to the traditional model of wholesale retail. So typically a restaurant like the Lighthouse, we would have suppliers that only sell to restaurants like ourselves or to uh, cloud kitchens like Marwan and other companies. Now, many of those are using their own channels or using aggregator channels to also sell directly to consumers in order to try to raise their revenues during this very difficult period. Understandably so. I'm not uh, saying they shouldn't, but it's appending the model. And therefore, that period, I find, is a difficult period for almost everyone. There's right. not going to be any clear winners. Now, uh, post-vaccine or as things start stabilizing, we will probably enter a phase two where two things will happen in my view. Some maybe of the traditional hierarchies, let's say, or supply chains that we know might come back, be restored somewhat. Although those that have discovered now um, direct channels will probably not give them up. Right. And also I think the trend as Marwan was saying that we've already seen of online presence will be accelerated. And there you're going to see also uh, two models, the aggregator model, which is already in existence, but Frankly, when you look at the margins that the F&B operators make post-aggregator commission at the current presence, it's difficult to see many sustaining that. And then, of course, direct channels. Direct channels will require time and require an investment. So, you know, I think it'll be very interesting to see how people react in phase one, but far more interestingly, how many of us will prepare for phase two, which is the post sort of vaccine longer term uh, yeah. period. I think let's just like uh, focus us for a second on this inherent tension between the um, either the brand owners or the restaurant uh, operators and the aggregators and how and how I mean you you mentioned now how um, a lot of the brand owners and the operators the restaurant operators they they want to create their own direct channel how do you see that how do you guys see that uh, uh, what would that look like in six months time, right? When we enter into phase two, once the, the health impact starts tapering off, what is the landscape and what's the kind of internal tension between the aggregators and the restaurant operators look like in the long run? Uh, Sky, I think you're muted. You're on mute, yeah. 
sorry for that. Um, it, it, I just want to share a perspective more as an investor and a participant in the in the in the space, less so as we directly participate in that conflict. But I think Hashim said it well: is that the pie has shrunk, and I don't think that that's immediately changing for two reasons. One is supply driven; like food prices are are quietly rising, and they will continue to rise. And there have been fundamental uh, 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 there's been destruction in the supply chain. And mm -hmm. while the government's done a beautiful job here and honestly has subsidized that impact on us, they have actually insulated this market um, through working with uh, key players to move food efficiently and, and tapping into strategic reserves of certain foods. But we are insulated from what is a rising food price environment. And that will translate eventually to consumer prices right at a time when, let me hit the other side, which is consumers are, have been hit and jobs have been hit. And the shift, like the share of, of, of kind of F and B within calorie consumption of humans is impacted and it will be impacted not only here, but I think globally uh, for a period of time. So this, the concept of some V-shaped recovery, even if there's a vaccine or something, I think is not, uh, not a safe assumption. Uh, you would, I would not manage my cost structure to that assumption. I would, I would assume that there will be some behavior shift, like if people have found how to online order from Kipson or Carrefour and they found how to reduce their total grocery uh, spend, their, their food or calorie consumption spend, I think also you'll have some uh, changing behaviors where people have discovered alternatives to, they've traded down within even the restaurant category, right? So maybe out of some of their favorite higher end restaurants into uh, uh, alternatives that are, that we would characterize as fast casual concepts in traditional model, but now through aggregators or through direct channels are now available in a new format and are, are more cost effective. So what I wanted to comment on, I guess, in in this tension, I don't think that tension will subside. I think that the pie has shrunk and it's going to stay smaller for a period of time. And then, of course, the world will normalize a bit. But whether that new normal is a slightly lower level of total F&B consumption or dollars, I should say, and certainly a mix shift, uh, I think that that's highly likely because we've seen the job losses, but we haven't even seen all of them, right? There are certain incentives in place that are helping minimize job loss that those incentives will run out. And I think we'll see that here and we'll see that in other markets. And the final comment on this movement to people like, like Kibson's and others like Farmbox and these, these direct to consumer uh, uh, channels are booming. And I don't think people unlearn that convenience. So I think for a period of time, you're, seeing, you're gonna see a shift in retail channels as well, uh, but that there will be a bit of, uh, of time to win those customers back. And some of that's gonna have to be in the form of better pricing. So I think, even when things normalize and the volume of activity increases, the value of activity might be challenged because there will be some pricing compression uh, because people will be trading toward value. Uh, that, that's just my belief for the next, I think that'll be an extended period of time. So I think if I were, as an F&B operator, you'd be rigorous on you know, getting your cost structures down and, uh, and, and, and then of course, pursuing those direct and aggregator channels to get to the market. So I think in terms of traditional F&B operators, um, I mean, are we, I mean, you see different forecasts all over the place, but there is a, a real threat that a very large portion of existing operators are just not going to exist in a year from now. So I guess the question to the panel is what's going to rise in its place? What sorts of business models are going to emerge from their place? I think Sky touched upon some of that demand is going to be eaten up by direct to consumer uh, groceries. Uh, because people are going to manage their spend and like cook more at home, and then there's a the convenience of of, uh, of ordering groceries online. They come to home, and it's you know it's it's wholesome food, it's fresh produce, and you know you know thanks to companies like Pure Harvest, it's 
it's you know produced locally, so the price point makes sense. Uh, but but if we take like a broad view on the FNB, so what 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 is gonna are, are we gonna look at a lot more businesses that are um, virtually driven, so more that look more like Leap Nation or omni-channel models that are a combination of you know virtual uh, virtual uh, virtualization of their menus and uh, and 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 sort of going through different concepts very quickly. So uh, so like let me lay that out there and see what the what the panel what how the panel reacts mm -hmm. to that. Yeah, so if I uh, want to answer that, so I think the online offline model uh, or omni-channel model was there since before, right? And although the online piece was was growing at a faster pace, and I think the future, I don't think it's going to be different. So we will both still see both, and the same business adopting both models, and uh, there will be room for both. Online uh, food delivery will also have its its market uh, market share and presence in the market. Offline. Uh, people will still go eat out. I was reading, a, like there was a research done, I think last week, and that surveys around uh, 18,000 people across the globe with also a good amount here in, in the region. And uh, some of the questions were, what are the first thing that you're gonna do post pandemic when we can actually go out? And around 60% of them said, we just wanna go back to our normal lives, right? And around 20 said, we're gonna travel to see family, which is back to normal life, right? So I think people will want to go out again. Now there's, the hygiene and, and, and fear factor, which eventually will fade away once hopefully the COVID situation is sorted out. But, uh, yeah. but of course, uh, the scene is gonna be different in terms of number of operators. So it's, these are really tough times and uh, survival is winning. So depending on how long the situation is gonna take, surviving and coming out from the, like after it, uh, with really good amount of resources to launch again, this is gonna be key for people to survive and be present and play again post, post this situation. So just to, to add to that, uh, Khaled, I think the first thing you'll see, and you guys touched on this already, is you're going to see consolidation across the value chain. You know, so that's for sure. So to Sky's point, I mean, as, as the pie is shrinking, um, some will fall out uh, inevitably, whether in the online or offline space, a combination, uh, because to your point again, efficiency will become paramount. So if you had an online or offline or combo channel, omni-channel presence, and were not extremely rigorous about your cost structure, uh, you now will have to be. And if you cannot, and by cost structure, I mean literally going through every cost measure you have, from your staffing to your rent to your, I mean, that's for the more physical, for the guys that are just on the cloud kitchens, uh, their marketing channels, staffing, etc. That's number one. I think efficiency will come also through many of us, uh, those that haven't already, adopting a more automated channel to the extent that they can across their value chain from the moment a customer either walks in, so reservation management, table management, all the way to the order being routed to the kitchen. All of that you're going to see be accelerated in a more automated way. But you will definitely see consolidation in my view. Secondly, I think you will see operators that are beyond being more efficient and nimble in terms of their cost structure, adopting not just multi-channel online offline but also within their business models evolving so uh, you know maybe a traditional dine-in fine dining restaurant will now ultra venture into um, dine out and you're seeing this already happening many of them are for the first time um, learning to deliver to customers at home thirdly uh, some of them that maybe just again welcome dining customers will start looking at things like catering 
So you're going to see people looking at their business model and trying to increase their channels. Number two, I want to differentiate between those that are more in the fine dining or kind of either high or middle, uh, middle, middle priced right. um, operators and the QSR and fast food. But the QSR and fast food, really, your only game is going to be more efficiency, more automation, and speed, because that's what your customer wants. For your, let's call the fine dining, the higher end, that's a little bit more interesting because they will have to evolve their models. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they're going to have to think about, if I'm offering you an at-home experience, how does that look like? You know, remember, you are paying a premium for the quality of yeah. the food, obviously, and but also for the experiential part yeah, like of that like a curated experience yeah a curated experience yeah. exactly when you're ordering from pizza hut nothing against pizza hut but this is food assembly right um so it's all about efficiency and speed when you're ordering from a high-end restaurant it's the experience in the restaurant it's not food assembly. even the the making you know the menu has uh, a lot of touches by chef etc etc so how are they going to translate that experience um outside of their physical uh, space so that they can still demand those types of prices. That's going to be very interesting to see because customers will ask for that. And whether that means spending more on uh, packaging so that you can you know, potentially take those dishes immediately out and maybe you know, entertain a small group of people, whether it's adding and you're seeing that some recipes, the things that you can do at home, a playlist, I'm not sure, it's very early, but those that are creative are going to find a way and some of them will be able to, to start gaining ground, and some of them will, will simply not be able to do it. I think that's a trend that you're going to see. Excellent. One other comment on just for the, for the fine dining segment, but I agree with what was said, is there's this element of the core model of, of, of you know, how many tables within a square footage of rent or square meter, and then the turnover of those tables, and then, of course, the composition of that of that uh, uh, check, right? The the average uh, revenue per okay. consumer yeah. per user, all of those things are a bit under attack in a world where you can fit a lot less people in due to social distancing requirements. The actual revenue opportunity per square meter is down, and then with lower frequency, you have all the negative effects of cost leverage of the restaurants. So I again encourage. I don't know how any of that smooths itself out too quickly. Now it's not to be overly dire. I think the world will return. Like people like socializing they want to be out but i think it's going to take a bit of time and and that when people live in expectations that hope is four months around the corner i think that's dangerous i think it's much longer than that but i do think that the world is going to want restaurants and all and i, I was trying to for a moment put myself in the position of if i ran one of those fine restaurants what would i be doing and i it's it's really tough so first of all i think that i'm empathetic with everybody that this this extraneous event has just rocked their world and, it, it, and, I'm, and I'm sorry for the damage it's caused for everybody. But I do think that I would start to think about um, when, uh, when Hashem said alternative delivery models, I think that's true. You have to be able to deliver your experience to people. And maybe that's even for some of your favorite dishes that people used to love your restaurant for, maybe you create a, a recipe, branded recipe box and distribute it with Kibsons in the menu so that people can make that entree at home. And, and then you're sharing some of your IP, but there's an experience and a note from the chef Another is rent out your chef, have your chef go uh, cook in people's homes for events and for birthdays and people still need to celebrate and enjoy life uh, despite the, the distancing and the issues. The final might be events in your, in your uh, restaurant, like maybe you can actually do more exclusive and curated events for a group of people who are comfortable being around each other with distancing, but that you can get a higher revenue for that, for that events hybrid model. 
and that maybe you didn't contemplate in the past. And I'm not thinking boardroom dining, uh, which maybe you had a private dining area. I'm thinking rent out the restaurant, right? And that maybe wasn't possible, but would be when your when your average night might be 20% of what it used to be and barely cover fixed costs. Uh, so you might have to rethink your models in this time for until the world normalizes. But I think that you know, for those on the on the I, I you know managing cost is a big thing, and I think that includes your sourcing strategies of where you're going to get food. And I think that's also in uh, in how cheaply you can get to the market the most. Uh, and for aggregators, the last thing I'd mention there is consolidation. I think if I were if I were in their camp, I would be in the camp of being the consolidator. How do I how do I right now take the market and be opportunistic? Uh, because eventually there won't be enough food for all these people to survive. There's not enough rents available in the market to everybody. So it's better to be the consolidator than the consolidated in a down market. Right. And can, can I can I just add one more thing here, Khaled, that I think is important? Yeah. And to a oh. point of uh, aggregator tension with uh, with uh, regular with direct channels, data and the use of data will also change. Remember, until now, most of the more traditional F&B operators they use the data they have mostly to know that Sky or Hashem has an algae against your know, shellfish or mustard, perhaps that he likes a table on the left or to the right. All of a sudden, they're realizing when they're going through uh, aggregator um, online delivery, they don't own the data of those customers. And to Sky's point exactly, if you want to start building bespoke models for delivery, you know, uh, bring your chef to someone's home, you know, that someone's birth, I mean, to, to create that great created bespoke model, you have to own the data. So that's going to create a traditional, uh, an additional tension between aggregators who, who, where the data sits currently, because uh, for now the F&B operators tend to be more like pipes. You know, you, you receive the order, but you don't know where it's coming from or who, who you're filling the order for. So that's going to, you know, become a bit uh, of what you've seen in the retail uh, space, you know, sort of the direct to consumer, the Amazon channels, people are going to start realizing I need to own my own data if I want to survive because that's the only way to create a more bespoke model for myself, understand my consumer preferences. And those preferences will have to go beyond he likes table uh, one or two or uh, prefers to sit in quiet or, or, uh, or dark area. And that's going to create an additional um, tension. And therefore, another reason to your point exactly that you will probably see consolidation. Because at some point, you're going to start seeing some of these guys saying, it actually makes sense to, to get together. I have piece of the pie and you do. And alone, each one of us individually is not able to sustain themselves. But together, there might be a possibility. Uh, um, and where do we see, I mean, where do you see the ghost kitchens playing in the middle of this? Like, I know, uh, Marwan, your business is predicated on that. But as, as businesses, uh, as, as traditional restaurants start uh, virtualizing their own business models. How do you see you working with uh, kitchen operators and those who own kitchens? And what do you think the position of the of the ghost kitchens are in the long run? Uh, so I I I I believe that uh, their model will also stay because if many traditional, for example, if Hashem today you want to open up and go online completely, so you don't want to Abu Dhabi. And operating in Abu Dhabi, the best option for you and the cheapest option for you would be to go with a virtual kitchen, right, with a cloud kitchen, right? So I think the need is, is there, especially if we're saying that more brands and more operators are going to go online. So uh, growth is, is really very efficient if you work with cloud kitchens. And uh, another side of it is that cloud kitchens themselves, they're now utilizing their space 
to offer more and to get more revenue streams. Like we've seen people have groceries now and delivering groceries and they're able to meet the demand that uh, like we've seen uh, InstaShop, Elegrocer and others couldn't meet during the last maybe few weeks with Ben Gibson and, and everyone else. So I think their, their model is really beneficial for restaurants who wanna go online and have really optimized space and cost structure. So I think their model will really helps. Scott, my dad. Yeah, my, yeah, my, my comment on Ghost Kitchen. I mean, I think what's interesting is I'm a big believer that in down markets, uh, LCTA wins, right? Lowest cost, but technically acceptable solution. And I think that it is a potentially alternative where you put the you you eliminate the fixed costs in your business, which are killing you if if you're if sales and volumes and foot traffic are way down, and you virtualize that into a more variable model. And I think that has to be compelling. So I think that people who haven't explored it already already are or should be thinking about that because especially if you think you can't capitalize and endure through the period of time it might take to absorb those empty seats. So I think it's an interesting model. I, those kitchens are already interesting and quite disruptive, and I think there are a lot of questions about them. I, I find one of the things that's interesting about ghost kitchens, though, they're sort of like WeWork, where they have long-term liabilities but short-term assets, right? And that's usually a risky model and a cycle. But what's quite unique about this is that in a downturn, it sent everybody, like real estate got killed, and there was no benefit to the alternative model. So I think that they, I think they've, this has proven their, long, their uh, staying power as, uh, and, and now I think that they they have a compelling USP right to to a, a restaurateur who wants to stay it has unique um, branding possibly customer loyalty ideally a good and unique product and it becomes a cheaper a more variable cost avenue to access the market so I think my my view would be that and I don't know the answer I haven't talked to like Katopia or others but it's a good question if if Muhammad Balu were on this call what would he be saying but my guess is that business is probably good. You know, can I just add to this, Khaled, and just to take the other side for, for fun, yeah, I, yeah. I do agree with, with Kyle Marwan, and there's no doubt that, again, as we said, the next phase acceleration, including of, of online presence, will happen. Therefore, Cloud Kitchens, NetNet, will be beneficiaries. But I do think that you have some traditional operators that think it's sort of this um, all-fixed solution, and the Marwan can speak more to it, but... I think one has to be cautious. I mean, cloud kitchens have their own challenges and operators have their own challenges. Uh, there's, it's not that there's no fixed cost, there is. Uh, it's just a different kind of cost. I mean, you're paying some kind of rent, right, to the operator of that space. You are spending on marketing. It's, 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 it's um, obviously digital marketing, but still, because there's so many brands out there that to cut out of the noise, uh, you have to be spending quite aggressively. You have obviously the cost of your staff that's operating inside. In some cases, you may even be paying for some of the equipment, et cetera. So my point being is that I think it will require nimble operators against smart operators to win in the cloud kitchen game. But I want to just caution against, I think the notion today, especially post-COVID, that anyone by just either joining a cloud kitchen or creating an online operation will simply be able to kind of extend his business. I don't think that's the case. Marwan can speak more to it, but I think we're seeing now that the ones that have scaled might have that opportunity. Many have tried to bring one or two or sometimes three brands into a cloud kitchen and realize that that's not enough scale. And therefore, that model, while sounding sexy, is not really long term viable. So it has its own challenges, but no doubt, net net, uh, that trend will accelerate. 
Right. Let, let me build on a related to this on a question that we've gotten from the from from our attendees, which is, you know, do you see the aggregators um, uh, vertically integrating with the ghost kitchens and with other elements of the of the value chain more and more as a as a way to get uh, to kind of higher unit economics? Are we seeing more of that in the next six months or less of that? Uh, if, I think it's in the next six months, I think it, it's going to stay where it is, I believe, because they've already gone in the uh, cloud kitchen space. So Deliveroo, they have their own cloud kitchens, and I believe all the other players have their own cloud kitchens where brands can come and operate from their Deliveroo additions, or each, each of the aggregators have their own uh, cloud kitchens also set up, whether themselves or whether through partners. So I think Deliveroo tried to go into the supply chain also, which is a service that, that they yeah. give to the brands on, Deliver on Deliveroo editions, on their uh -huh. kitchens, where they can really source with a scale to all their suppliers. But I'm not sure really how that's evolved with them. Uh, so I think these are the services that we, they will be giving in the next uh, six months. And on that point also, I think we discussed, especially during the last period in Dubai, where we've heard lots of negative press and a big push from restaurants towards aggregators. Yes. on capping the margins and uh, on launching like Dubai restaurants through Mira launching their own uh, aggregators. So I believe this is really a tough one. And uh, I believe the industry is going, if we look at DS as an example also, uh, legislation is coming into play. So, uh, so far the online food delivery space hasn't been regulated or minor regulation. So today in the US there are legislation that have already passed or being passed now and capping the commissions between 15% or 5% to 15%. Now, I think more regulation in the space will happen and uh, it will be a win-win situation. And uh, I think this is how the industry is gonna, like this will turn out. I was yeah. gonna agree with Marwan. I think that uh, you asked about consolidation. I think consolidation is more likely within the cloud kitchens and within aggregators than amongst them. And I think, short term, I think nothing will happen, partly because valuation expectations for each of these parties uh, are way too high and for their investor base. There, there will be no reasonable discussions to be had, I don't think, in the near to intermediate term. But I think when and if uh, some of these are struggling, which and, and certainly within their, uh, uh, their specific domain, I think that consolidation makes a lot of sense, uh, that there's too many of them. And, and it's, I'm, I think I presume we're talking about the local and regional market, not the global. But then the other thing I'd mention is regulation. I, I think that that's, that hasn't emerged in, in the, whatever its final form will be. And that can lead to either consolidation or deconsolidation, depending on how regulation works. In this case, I think it could lead again toward consolidation. Uh, but then, of course, toward uh, capped or affected economics. I think, though, I, I wonder if there isn't some uh, disruptive model waiting to happen within partner, a business model shift within the aggregators to share more of the rents and make and entice uh, restaurants to, to to partner and be loyal and I haven't seen it yet but I keep wondering when it's going to happen because I think to be a restaurant and especially if you already had loyal customers and a and a tremendous brand and great product if you're unique and you're you're one of the survivors if you will in any scenario I wonder what makes you compelled to continue in the world that, of, of the traditional aggregator model I think that you'd have to start to look for a home that treats you better than the other homes um, so I'm I, I, I keep wondering when a model's going to emerge that serves that and creates some sort of a unique offering and loyalty among one of the aggregators or consolidation among the aggregators creates that inherently when there's only one or two, you've picked a side of the coin. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm very curious to see how that plays out. I, I think I'm surprised not to see the aggregating model already emerging into a winner take all model, or at least 
one absolutely dominant player because there's a couple of meaningful players. Um, but I'm, I imagine that may happen sometime soon or, or being encouraged by the shareholders to see that consolidation happen. And um, I think we got the, another question from, from, from our attendees. I mean, I'm not sure if everyone followed, but there, there's news coming out today that Uber Eats is pulling out of the, um, of, of the region in general. So across Egypt, Saudi, UAE, um, do you got what, 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 what's your initial reaction to that? What are your thoughts? Like what, what, what's your immediate reaction to that? Hashim? Um, sorry, I was just trying to read some of the questions. Uh, look, yes, I did read, the, I did read the news earlier. I mean, again, I think, look, it was exactly the point of just made now. I mean, yeah. you will need to see, um, some consolidation. Those are brands that have the same, uh, owner. So it does not make sense for them, you know, to, to compete. Um, and also there's a drive for, I mean, to Sky's point, I don't know if it will be a winner take all, but probably close. So obviously Kareem's attempt to build a kind of super app, if you will, that goes beyond just food where you go in, it's a marketplace. And I think a few others are, are going to be doing something similar and already are. That yeah. makes sense, and therefore you have to, uh, add, you know, put all your eggs in one basket. So, you know, consumers ultimately, again, remember, it's a. There's only so much attention consumers can give to that space, and therefore they will not be going to six, seven, eight, nine different brands. It'll have to. So ultimately, people will converge to two or three that are giving you a better experience, in my view. Uh, and right now, you're seeing that seismic shift here. Who who those winners uh, will be? And again, I think whoever owns the data, that's a very big part of the, of the pie because um, it will enable them to be able to spot trends ahead of time based on the consumer data and preferences that they have and react their business accordingly. So that's a very important uh, part of that consideration. I, uh, my one comment on the consolidation, I hadn't seen Uber Eats. I, I just checked it out. That's not surprising though. And actually, I always wonder how any of these players are making any real money, right? So without venture capital and, and, and lofty valuations to, uh, to afford them forever, there must have been some assumption about market acquisition that got to scale that then made the economics make sense. Yeah. And clearly that didn't happen, at least for Uber Eats, because even yeah. now it, they're reporting that it was 1% of revenue and 4% of losses. That's, that's exactly what you'd expect. And so I think there has to be consolidation. These key people can't be making money and it's sustained by investment, uh, and by the belief that it will eventually reach some scale and some favorable unit economics. But like many under other tech industries we're seeing now are tech enabled services. Mm. Uh, the proof is coming now. And so I think consolidation is the right thing. There should be for a, a, a market. If you look at the UAE of, you know, under 11 million people, we shouldn't have like four or five dominant global, you know, major brands, right? We should have like one or two. Um, and so eventually that will happen. It's just a question of when and who the winners are. Uh, yeah, so to add on that, I, I agree with, uh, with Hashim and Sky on these points. And I think for Uber Eats, when they exited India, they said it clearly that uh, if we're not, we, we're going to go to every market and if we're not among the top two players, then we're going to exit. And they did exit India because they really couldn't get to a second place or the first position. Same thing is happening here. Now, in terms of consolidation and having one winner takes all, I think without proper regulation to the point that we've discussed before, I think that's really very risky for uh, for operators, so unless there's really solid regulations in place and there's a consolidation to one ultimate player, I think it's it's quite risky. But eventually, I believe it's it's going to happen. 
Excellent. So I think related to a question from, from the audience, and I think we've kind of touched upon this or danced around this a bit. How do you see kind of FNB operators or other existing ones or, or new ones that emerge in the future? How will they look to um, either reduce or maximize their physical footprint? So, I mean, you know, there's an argument to be made that we're a bit over, over, uh, uh, overweight or overinvested in the GCC in, 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 in sort of uh, brick and mortar traditional outlets. Um, how do you see the FNB operators reacting? Is there going to be a change in the way we think about dining out in terms of utilizing the space? Are restaurant outlets going to double as, as mini ghost kitchens where they serve multiple of their own brands? How do you see that all kind of playing out in the long run? So maybe just quickly, I think uh, Khaled, the answer is probably all of the above. Um, <laughs> I think you will see a little bit of all of that. Um, for one, I think um, one thing that will have to happen or hopefully will happen on a more positive note is you will have to start seeing some partnerships, meaningful partnerships between landlords and operators. So the kind of old model of fixed rent is going to be, I think, difficult to implement because you're going to have so many spaces, physical spaces out there. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think one of the encouraging signs, hopefully, and you're starting to see some noise around that now, but it's too early, is that you will see um, landlords and operators coming together and saying, look, we want this to, to work. We want a long-term partnership, and therefore they will work more on, you know, uh, which some things already exist, but maybe an exclusive turnover basis or revenue share basis, etc. And that's, I think, a healthy sign because as a landlord, you want a long-term tenant. And as a as a uh, operator, you want a space that you can kind of you know count on for longer periods of time. Time, and so far, I think the traditional model had been not just here in most places of the world, frankly, where a landlord is saying, and I'm not blaming them. I mean, but they're saying, you know, as long as I'm getting my checks, I don't really care one way or the other. And I think you're going to start seeing maybe a more cooperative opening of books discussion about, you know, wait a minute, it's not just about getting a check here one. It's about, is this the right player for the space? And doing, um, aligning their interests would do that. I think that's definitely one, one aspect that I would like to see, which I think would be healthy and would help both sides of the equation. Secondly, to your point, Khaled, uh, yes, I think the point of, for example, seeing physical operators like ourselves, and we're already doing that or looking into that, um, potentially uh, trying out other brands, maybe in the virtual space from the same kitchen will make sense. It's essentially, you know, sucking up some of the slack and being more efficient because yeah. not, not at least for those restaurants that have um, downtimes and many do because some, you know, are in office environments and therefore the evening are so busy or the other way around. So I think you will start seeing experimentation with that. And even within the same brand, you will probably start seeing experimentation with you know, uh, a physical menu and a virtual menu. Not to say that whatever sells in my physical space, maybe I'm in an office environment uh, and I know that my customers like X, Y, and Z, but 10 minutes away, there's another uh, space where people like, you know, so you will start seeing virtual menus as well. So I think it's, it's going to be very fluid and, and people will have to experiment and each operator will find probably um, a balance that works for them. Uh, yeah, from my perspective, also on this point, I, I completely agree with uh, with Hashim on this point. I think we're going to see lots of different models being implemented, being tested, and tried out. Uh, food halls, for example, in the states was was growing at approximately seventy percent annual growth rate. 
and that's massive and we started seeing it here in the region so potentially that's also a model that uh, might potentially exist combined of course with an omni-channel omni-channel experience where online and offline is yeah. bridged together uh, there's an interesting success story in the states like uh, old one which is around uh, the halal guys and these guys have mm-hmm. started with completely almost to a certain point completely food carts and so that kind of uh, model gives them the actual physical experience and physical experience with their customer and touch point with customers at a lower cost and at the same time uh, they were able to stay online uh, to be online uh, currently in cloud kitchens so really lots of models uh, will be tested and are being tested as we speak and it's interesting to see which ones will, will, uh, will really stick excellent uh, Sky, I just want to shift to your side of the business a bit because I've been talking a lot about the the, uh, the brand owners and the operators, but just on a totally other side, which is the you know cultivation agricultural produce. I think there's a global shift towards you know in sourcing and you know bringing supply chains closer and bringing them in country, uh, and your business really is at the center of that. Are you are you already feeling like a strong demand from governments? towards that, or is it a bit too early? You're on mute, Sky. Sorry about that. Um, Yes, I I believe, clearly we built the business around the belief that uh, local sourcing of food was a a compelling uh, proposition, but admittedly, I believe, uh, again, with LCTA, with the lowest cost but technically acceptable solution, that people, we uh, fundamentally agribusiness commodities, uh, trade in a in a market that is uh, competitive and fed by imports and fed by local supply and seasonal dynamics and all. And the reason I mention this is that I think that this trend is powerful, but I think here in this region, it's gonna take time. There's historically a distrust of, of local uh, uh, fresh produce, of local, there's an oyster company now, and people have certain, uh, we the local producers who are relatively new to this market, we're about three years old, are changing that and changing that quickly because people who experience it try the incredible quality and the the variety that's available, but it will take time. So when you ask about where we stand, you know, the last three years, it was a bit lonely. You know, there was a lot of an element of uh, selling the dream of, hey, guys, this is very real and a compelling force because fundamentally it's not only higher quality, um, it's actually cheaper than importing from places like Europe or other places. And that we, we talk about this with the governments, but it offers a real food security solution, water conservation when they use less water, economic diversification, because very real infrastructure, job creation and localization. And then, of course, sustainability. We use not only less water, but we're carbon negative. As opposed to flying food around, we eat carbon from sources that otherwise would uh, pollute the environment. So um, the way I'm where I, addressing the question specifically of what we're seeing is we're definitely seeing a lot of interest. Um, we were already in discussions with uh, governments, both the UAE government and Saudi, and then of course our, our largest backer, which was recently announced as a, as a semi-sovereign wealth out of Kuwait. Uh, but there's a lot of interest in this potential for the reasons I mentioned, that it, that it not only creates and domesticates food production, which is good, including in a shock like COVID-19, but mm-hmm. also cre- creates real economic diversification. And when I say real, like food can be anywhere from you know six to, 16% of a GDP of a nation, depending on like Holland, for instance, that's a massive exporter of both, not only of food, but of the equipment, the knowledge, the, uh, the, the systems and technology used in food production. For them, it's anywhere from 10 to 16% of GDP. For other countries like America, it can be more like six to eight. Um, 
in, a, in here, it's less than one, right? And that, that clearly shows there's a massive opportunity in that space. And I think that, that that alone, in light of the combination of the COVID-19 and oil price shock that we're experiencing, is really, really alerting governments to the potential of this opportunity. And then I think already we were seeing mass adoption in, in retail. We're in Spinney's, Waitrose, Carrefour, many uh, uh, restaurants through uh, distribution partners. And I think there's a real awareness, but this is, of course, driving that and is, is only exacerbated by the desire for retailers, because retailers are now the dominant source of, of that supply. We're selling almost exclusively to retail now. Um, but they're, uh, they're, of course, waking up that they can lower their cost structure and get security of supply. So I think that this is the first or second inning, you know, pardon the American baseball analogy, as I'm an American, hmm. but it's, it's a very early uh, uh, inning. I don't know what the equivalent is in cricket, uh, but it, a very early inning. In also an inning. <laughs> also an inning, thank you. Uh, but it's very, it's very early innings in what will be a multi-year sector shift. And I, the final thing, though, to say to the fruit and uh, or F and B guys and people, on, it's good for you because the cost structure will lower. Like we're produ we're producing for under a dollar a kilo in some SKUs, and that's insanely uh, cheap relative to the imports. And so, of course, you have to add distribution and all these things. But no matter what, we're you know 25 to 50 percent less than comparable quality imports, and that's just us. We haven't even gotten to scale yet. Right. We intend to share that value with the market and competition will come into our sector as well. And that will be good for the market and good for your cost structure as you're trying to lower it and offer variety. And and the final thing on that, Khaled, there's new business model innovation coming out of our space. Like we can, for instance, engage with a chef and say that is your row of the greenhouse. What would you like to plant and have exclusively in your food? There are 440 commercial varieties of tomatoes in the world. Right now we produce 20. Um, and, and that's multiples over the six that the region typically imports. So we can offer brand new variety and alignment and partnerships to help people differentiate their, their kitchens and their, their menus. And we were doing that in partnership with Mina Brasserie and DIFC. We made a five tomato salad that they marketed on their New Year's menu. That was not possible before um, until this technology arrived and this new movement. So I think that actually this is a big opportunity, of course, for our industry. And I'm I want to be very grateful for that. In light of this environment, I feel terrible for people farther down the value chain. But I also want to say it's an opportunity when the world wakes back up. And I, I encourage people to investigate companies like ours, but also the others that are entering the market and inevitably will. Right? We will also be looking for new models to access you and help you capture value. Right? It is really in the end in food supply, right? it's a value creation versus value capture game. And some people are capturing disproportionate pieces of the value chain particularly in this market where there are some powerful consolidated forces, some in retail, some in distribution. And I mm -hmm. think it's the job of restaurants and new market entrants like us to help shake up those markets and capture our fair, fair piece of the pie. Right. And, and we, we will be looking to partner with uh, restaurants to do that in the future. Sky, I just have a question. If I invest with you, can I get a tomato named after me? <laughs> That's really all I want. Yes, yes, you could, because there are, uh, we, we are ultimately branding and renaming varieties because some, sometimes the variety okay. is actually is already is already used in another market like in Canada. So, yes, we uh, we, we could potentially uh, brand. Uh, Khaled, we could start another contest in uh, tomato naming uh, the tomato and see name what the best exactly. name is for my new tomato. Also. I'm very excited. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the Hashem sweet tomato. I like it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Uh, so, um, just a couple more questions from from our audience. So um, 
Um, firstly, I think we, we touched upon this question a bit earlier, but I think let's expand upon it a little bit. Like, uh, given the economic downturn, I mean, you know, you know, clearly there's an expectation for reduced consumer demand and consumer spending in FMB. Um, I, I think the question here is what, how, how, um, how do you think the cost structure might be impacted from future government policy? Will future government policy be, be um, you know, what, what kind of policies can governments enact? that will help support the cost structure of FNB more broadly. So, and what, and what are you seeing already across, particularly the GCC, the UAE and Saudi? Well, if I could comment on one that's actively happening, and I know, for instance, the Minister of Future Food Security is advocating, as, a, as, is, as are several of the leaders of Abu Dhabi's government, but that there will cert be certain support for local, um, which is admittedly lower cost structure. It, it would benefit you. It would benefit all of you if, if ultimately a booming... Uh, domestic production uh, became available because it is lower cost. When you air freight food, it's grace expensive. And a huge portion of that shows up in your P&L and shows up in your price to the consumer. So that's one big way that I think the government is tackling this. And then I think, as Marwan mentioned earlier, potential regulation in certain areas where margins are very high and potentially uh, market power is excessive. If that happens, that will also benefit both consumers and those who procure, whether in the wholesale markets or from uh, food distribution. So I think in the end, food cost isn't the biggest driver of restaurants, right? We all know that. It is a major driver, but not the only one. But that's an area where I think the government can heavily influence it. The last one, and I think whether regulation or just market forces disciplines it, is what Hashem mentioned about uh, rent, right? I mean, the, the landlords need to share in the pain, and that's got to happen. And I, I think it will absolutely happen, because if not, so many restaurants will be out of business. There'll be almost no lights on the street anymore. Uh, but they, they're going to have to adapt. And honestly, I would love to see the government come in and, and, and support that with regulation. They, they're, um, sometimes the pain ends has to end up in the industry where it's most able to be born. And it's these powerful, well, you know, wealthy real estate holding companies are certainly stronger and more capitalized and have greater access to capital markets than do some of the small hold restaurants that will be wiped out without some, some change. So those are two areas where I can see the government getting involved and helping. Just to add one more area to that, I think, I mean, to Sky's point, I mean, this, you know, the three areas where restaurants can, can, can really be more efficient. I mean, one is your rent, which we've already addressed. And certainly there, I agree with him. I mean, remember, especially when we talk about uh, the UAE, but most of the GCC, um, a lot of the landlords are government or quasi-government. So their change of attitude towards this could have a massively positive impact, no doubt. And I also think if they do it, many of the private developers will also, you know, follow suit. Secondly, this, the other large cost for any uh, F&B operator is obviously personnel and staff. So there, I think a lot can be done to make labor costs uh, come down and more flexible. The current setup is not ideal. I think it's rigid and it's quite expensive. So to, you know, add, uh, add new staff, uh, reduce staff, um, et cetera, et cetera, there's a lot of friction and a lot of cost. And that's definitely an area where I think more flexibility is needed. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. So, so I agree with the guys on, on these points. And to add to it that for labor specifically, I think the UAE government has taken measures in the last, I think, month where uh, they introduced the rules on uh, temporary, uh, salary cuts and temporary unpaid leaves and all those that really facilitate 
things for companies during these tough times. It's, these are tough times for everyone and any regulation and any law in any of these areas is, is definitely ahead. Um, I think last question, and I think we're, we're running out of time, but um, to combine these last two questions, I think the first is, will, you know, will social distancing constraints uh, affect full service restaurants such that they're going to have to open up more restaurants to hit revenue targets? I think what we're saying is actually the opposite, which is that full service restaurants are going to have to figure out how to create more revenue in that physical space rather than take up more space because of, you know, it's about like minimizing your cost, but anxious to hear what everyone else has to say as well. Uh, yes, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, sorry, Fadl Maran. No, no, Fadl Maran. Yeah, no, I think it's, uh, it's exactly that. Um, uh, you know, remember every new, every new uh, space requires capex uh, over and above the rent and usually that's quite high. So I think the restaurant operators will have to figure out how to do more with the space they have and maximize it at its utmost potential. That will be, I think, the name of the game going forward. Obviously, if there are new um, models for uh, rent that would come that would come up, that would help, because to the extent that those are um, aligned with the landlord, as we we're saying earlier, so for example, revenue share models, etc., that decreases, that shifts the risk profile a little bit, and uh, maybe enables people to experiment with certain physical spaces and see if they work. And if they don't, they can come out, you know, quickly. The right, the problem right now, Khaled, is every space requires you know, six to 12 months of planning plus yeah. uh, quite a lot of capital. So a lot of the operators, even if they want to do that, they, they, they are, um, you know, they, they are risk averse. Exactly. Yeah. So if you have a model that maybe enables them to um, do that without a massive initial outlay, that might help. Yeah. If I, if I could add a comment on what I think has to happen is that just it's a changed expectation of some of these restaurant concepts, right? They had a certain target of what they thought they could achieve in that space, and they're going to have to reset their expectations as will their investors on their on the on the target and potential profitability of that unit. And that that's where I think opportunity in things like adjusting rents, adjusting uh, borrowing costs. With you recently, Abu Dhabi announced an 80% SME subsidy for loans, right? So bar accessing cheaper working capital and cheaper cheaper capital costs. Uh, labor adjustments and certainly if the government supports there, but that they get the cost structures down and get the target margins or the margin expectations of investors down. And one of the ways that that happens is consolidation into investors with different returns expectations. And then of course, uh, elements of that capital stack uh, changing to lower expectation investors, which could include the government who, who's getting involved in whether directly or indirectly in subsidies to SME finance or other things. So. I think that that's one of the expectations. The idea that if you opened up a restaurant a year ago and thought in, in uh, DIC you were going to achieve X, you probably just have to realize that that may not be achievable. But then do what you can to optimize and capture as much value in that space as you can through all the alternatives we talked about and, and whatever they may think up and create, right? I would also say that you're not alone in these challenges. So constantly shop the world. Somebody might have a more creative idea in New York. And, you know, it's, that's, that idea is as available to you as anyone else. So I would constantly be studying other markets and what they've done to adapt to see if any great ideas get discovered that are sticking and then benefit from their A-B testing and, 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 and try that idea here and see if it sticks here too. Uh, yeah, on that point, there was, uh, there's a restaurant in, uh, I think, London or New York, if I'm not mistaken, I, like I've seen it maybe four weeks back, that shifted their, 
their actual outlet to a grocery store and they were allowed to open actually and they started serving grocery inside the store so i believe definitely looking at the cost structure reducing it every cost uh, item so that uh, to match the expectations from a revenue perspective other revenue streams how you can really use the space the kitchen to generate other income and maybe to put a small happy note at the end i think we've all seen in dubai or i'm not sure if you've seen it on the day that uh, uh, the government eased the restrictions we've seen the queue at one of the pubs i so i think people yes, might yes. really go back to 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 uh, going out much more quite fast faster than we think and hoping so actually yeah, and I, I, want, I would have wanted to second that, is that people will want to socialize and be out. This has yeah. been survived before, back yeah. to the Spanish flu, back to um, even in communities. I mean, Sierra Leone had Ebola, and within seven, five, six months, the world normalized there. And it, 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 we will recover. It's just don't assume it's in three to four months, but it will recover. It will get better. Now, I think this idea of social distancing and for how long that's imposed, that affects the actual economics of square footage because you just physically can't fit as many seats. So you've got to accept that reality and rerun your model in that new world, right? But it's not all dire. It will get better. And I want to mention, too, even people are innovating here. Look at uh, Chef Middle East, almost exclusively Horica forever. And now they're selling direct to consumer unique packages. And from what I understand, it's taken off. And they're saying you can be a chef at home and they're ta targeting a different consumer with a new message. So look around for success stories. Get inspired because it's easy to be, you know, and, and rightfully so knocked back by what's happened and all but i think start to go get go seek inspiration in the world to help you find a model or an idea that can give you inspired to get up tomorrow and and go back to the good fight because some some not all will make it through this but some will and then again seek opportunities for cost savings somebody i saw in the comments the final thing i wanted to mention was someone was talking about the possibility of virtualizing and and moving to shared cost centers for things like accounting and back office and other services Absolutely. Admittedly, you probably should have already been doing that. Uh, so there, there's, there are a lot of people that I think there are areas that maybe you could have cut before and should have. And what's that uh, Rahm Emanuel quote? That, you know, don't let a good uh, a crisis go to waste. waste. Yeah, yeah. So I think try to find ways that this crisis can benefit you and how you run your business long term. And, and maybe your acumen as a business person to adapt to such challenges. So on that on that note, quickly, Khaled, I mean, to Sky's point, I mean, we are a good example for that. We essentially automated our entire value chain or in the process of doing that. And we've been doing that for the last year. So there, is, there are many ways to cut out costs by doing things today. There are so many smart uh, companies out there that right. are doing certain, some of the things that you would assume you'd have to do in physical form. Yeah. And kind of staying with the, with the more optimistic version, look, uh, human beings are social animals. So we will go back to socializing and, and going out to restaurants and bars and cafes and whatnot. I think what, what these guys were saying, and I agree with them, for anyone out there that's listening that maybe is thinking or already has an F&B operation, it's all about just planning for it for the next year or two and not creating a false hope of an immediate solution that then does not enable you to really be able to be kind of in best shape when it's needed, because that's probably a year or a year and a half or maybe two from now and not right now. So right now is really trying to optimize stay alive, uh, you know, optimize whatever you need in your business, retool it. As Kai said, look around. There's many examples of very, very creative solutions globally because we're not that problem alone. So that when things go back to some kind of normalcy, you are really ready to um, uh, aggressively spend and invest in your business. I think that's really the, the take-home message for, for many, many of us, including ourselves. And Marwan, you said it earlier, but survival is winning. 
And then when I used to be a private equity investor, we would always say that in a downturn, you extend the option. Options always have time value, right? If you can just endure through it, you'll have time to create and partner and do things. But if you don't get through it, that's, uh, that's of course, the end game or you've lost. And I think uh, whatever you can do to survive in creative financing solutions, cost structure, alternative revenue models, all these things, and, and then get through to the other side when the world inevitably normalizes. But just, again, no short-term fixes. Think structurally, how do I adjust my cost structure and get through this? Excellent. So I think uh, that answers our last question or helps answer our last question, which was, you know, will brick and mortar disappear? I think, I think we're all saying basically never, right? It may change and it's all about, you know, efficiency in the square meterage and, it's all, and about driving the differentiated revenue stream. But I think we'll, we're human beings, will always continue to want to socialize and eat out. So I think that's never changing. So um, I think we're, we're, we're out of time. So I just want to take the last uh, couple of minutes if there are any kind of final thoughts you want to share with our audience uh, and to thank you all for, uh, for, for joining. So if anyone has anything that they'd like to wrap up with, like uh, the, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you, to, Thank you, yes. Thank you for joining. It's a great <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think just, those yeah. forums are important, uh, Khaled. And I think, um, you know, this is, uh, I mean, uh, Sky just said this, and I think he said it well. Um, you know, people, especially entrepreneurs of all sorts, I think sometimes you could feel alone in this and that you can feel stuck. So I think those kind of uh, forums um, really help people. I mean, every time we and our businesses have gone out and spoken to others, immediately started brainstorming and find solutions and, and feel also that we're moving. So I think that's very important through that period. So I think, um, and there are so many ways to do this. I mean, whether it's webinars or I listen personally to a lot of podcasts, um, some to do with my business, some don't, but they give me a lot of creative energy to think about other things and be optimistic about finding solutions. So I think it's, it's very important. So thank you for, uh, for organizing that and thank the uh, audience for all the good questions. Well, to the audience, if I could say one other thing is individually, and assuming you're a single restaurant or single F&B operator, individually, you might, not, you might be somewhat powerless to some of these forces, but together, you're definitely not. And within the, the realms of legality on organizing here, there is some ways you can organize and help to support your cause and lobby uh, to get uh, uh, certain ministries and others involved in the things that would help you, whether that's tackling real estate, labor friction costs, the elements we talked about. So if I, I agree with get inspired and get focused, um, I realize you're not alone, seek knowledge centers and podcasts, and, and then also possibly seek each other uh, to go tackle some of these challenges, because together you'll have a, a pretty loud voice to whether that's to get these loan facilities to accommodate your industry and its needs, or whether that's, again, tackling real estate, one of the big challenges of that fixed cost that um, I think that together you have a pretty loud voice to maybe make some changes to these things and to do so quickly. Marwan? Uh, yeah, well, I'd just say that uh, maybe some, some of the largest tech companies in our day-to-day -day that really changed the, the, the face of the earth started right after the 2008 recession. So uh, I think we're going to come out, all of us, stronger uh, after this, this pandemic and uh, just hang in there and look at the flight at the end of the tunnel. Excellent. So thank you, thank you to our panel, and thank you for all our attendees today, our audience, for sharing some great questions and engaging. Uh, this is the first NUA Capital webinar, and I think we're going to continue having them around specific verticals. I think food 
uh, and the digitization of food in general is such a critical topic that we'll probably revisit this topic and deep dive into some of a lot some of the themes that were raised today and we'll look forward to inviting some of our uh, panelists back as well so thank you everybody thank you for that thank, thank you, you. Thank, thank you everyone. everyone thanks, thanks guys